The pay disparity between the men and women is, is just too large and, and we want to continue to fight. Uh, the generation of players before us fought and now it's our job to, to keep on fighting. The pay cap for the women's Major League Soccer players is 11 times less than the pay cap for men's Major League Soccer. 11 times. Rapino gets across him. It's towards Listening to Give and Go with Rotas Wadera only on Girls Soccer Network. Hello and welcome. You are listening to episode 64 of Give and Go. I am your host, Rotas Wadera, and thank you so, so much for making the choice to listen to us at Girls Soccer Network. Now, we are happy to be back, of course, for all the latest and greatest news analysis content everything related to the world of women's soccer go to www.girlssoccernetwork.com check us out on instagram at girls soccer network or on twitter at girls soccer net and of course if you want to give me a follow hit me up on instagram at rowan datas 25 r-o-w-i-n-d-a-t-a-s 25 all right it's been an insane last couple of of weeks in in the world of women's soccer there's so much to get you caught up on First, I want to talk about who our guest is. We have Randy Waldrum, who is the head coach for the Nigeria women's national team, as well as the University of Pitt Panthers in the ACC. So be sure to be ready for that coming up in a little bit. We also have World Cup to tie a bow on naturally. We have to talk about what everyone's talking about, which is the Luis Rubiales situation with Jenny Hermoso, the infamous kiss. We will get into all of that. But first, gotta give a shout out. We have a new podcast on Girls Soccer Network. It is called The Big Life Podcast. They're four episodes in. They drop an episode every Thursday. They really go into what it's like to be a college athlete, the ups and downs of the journey, along with some great analysis of the college and pro game. It's two Big Ten athletes, one being our very own Sam Carey, the captain for the University of Iowa soccer team. They're off to a hot start. And Jordan Wicks, who is a striker for the Michigan State Spartans. So they give you a unique perspective on the Big Ten, on college athletics, and you're definitely going to want to tune in. Now, I don't think it's any surprise that Sam Carey is anchoring a defense that just kept a clean sheet as the Hawkeyes stayed hot with a 1-0 win over Mississippi State. So you know she played a big role in that. And her co-host, Jordan Wicks, at Michigan State is on fire a hat-trick in eight minutes against Northern Colorado. I don't care what level it is, who the opponent is. A hat-trick in eight minutes is rare, impressive. Every single superlative that you can think of, every single adjective that you could think of, it applies. So we're excited to see how Sam and Jordan's seasons play out along with this amazing podcast that they have weekly every Thursday. So be sure to check that out again. More can be found at girlssoccernetwork.com. So we will get into Randy Waldrum's interview, NWSL, everything related to that. But the biggest thing that we need to talk about is what is going on with the Spain celebrations are essentially marred by what has happened. Instead of the situation dying down, it's only escalated even further. Both sides continue to double down on what happened. 
You have Luis Rubiales' mother going on a hunger strike, locking herself in a church. I mean, that's about as dramatic as it gets. That's something out of a Spanish soap opera, to be quite honest with you. You then have Rubiales now leaking the video that was given to her by a Spanish player. Some player leaked this video, which only makes things worse. That appears to show Jenny Hermoso smiling and, and talking about the kiss, but we'll get into that. I think first things first, this has been a part of the culture, okay? It isn't just Rubiales and the kiss. There's so much more to unpack behind this. This has been ongoing, right? Even before Spain was good, it just wasn't getting the attention before because Spain was not good. You get what I'm saying, right? There are numerous videos I've seen online on Twitter of previous coaches violating boundaries with with players. Like I saw one of their old coaches grabbing one of the players by the cheek and pinching their cheeks. Like, that is such a violation. I can't even get into just the amount of entitlement that has been going on. There was a separate workplace allegation towards Rubiales. So this has been ongoing. It isn't just this moment. The the other thing is if you're Luis Rubiales, like I know this is like as a man, like what are you doing? Like do you not know what did your mom really raise you to have a lack of manners and decorum in, in the way that you do? The the gesture that you made up in the box towards your nether regions like what is that what are you doing then you have the picture of him lifting one of the players up above his shoulder so it's like this is a clear this has clearly been ongoing and it's something that there's really no place for so anyone who wants to justify what happened and that he shouldn't be fired or whatever it's like his time has been coming the problem is that it, it just wasn't getting the attention that it was before. And another thing to consider, this is just speculation, but what do you think all these players went on strike for, right? They went on strike because it was too controlling of an environment, among many other things. What if this was one of the things? What if this was Rubiales violating boundaries time and time again, and they knew nothing was going to be done about it, so they went on strike? What if that was the reason, right? Like, you never know. The only issue I have with the video of Jenny Hermoso and the team is that the, at the end, the team was egging it on and kind of mocking or making fun of Hermoso by chanting, you know, kiss, kiss, kiss at the end. And to me, that doesn't, it's not, it, that's not a good look at all either because now it, all, it comes across to people who are not involved with the situation at all that you're condoning that action or that you're accepting that it happened, right? Everyone's supposed to be taking a stand here. You're not supposed to be egging that on. You're not supposed to be condoning that time of behavior. So, you know, that that's one thing. I think still, this is not something you would see in the men's game between Federation people and the players. Like, yes, they're going to celebrate after the game. Yes, they are excited, but... You, okay, a kiss on the cheek might happen, but you're never going to see a kiss on the lips, okay? I'm sorry. You're never going to see a kiss like that where you grab the other person's face and do that and lay one on. That's n You're not going to see that anywhere else. 
So Rubiales has been suspended by FIFA, but under some rules, he can't be suspended or let or fired by the Spanish government. So there's still, it's still a fluctuating situation. We don't know exactly how it's going to end, but it's just, it has not been the best look for the Spanish national team. And it's a really unfortunate thing for the players who deserve to be celebrating. They deserve to be remembered for doing something historic and now everything that has happened since then has taken away from that so there's only so much that can be said since everyone is talking about it but those were just my thoughts on on what happened all right so we move on to something a little more positive way more positive and it is the interview with randy waldrum who is somehow able to manage working with both the nigeria women's national team and the university of Pitt panthers Nigeria had an incredible World Cup, even though they almost made it to the quarterfinal. They really were an incredible, incredibly strong defensive team that was able to get forward when necessary. Now, we have... It's, it's a long interview, so get ready. Uh, there, we go into a lot of great stuff, so prepare yourselves, and we hope you guys really enjoy this interview. So here it is, guys. We are with... Randy Waldrum, the manager for the Nigeria women's national team, as well as the head coach for the University of Pitt Panthers. Coach, how are you doing post the World Cup? And now you're in the thick of an NCAA season with Pittsburgh. Yeah, I tell you what, it's been a uh, a busy time for me, obviously. Uh, fortunately, I have a great um athletic director here at the University of Pittsburgh that understands the importance of what I do with Nigeria and what it brings to to that country, as well as um, how it helps impact, you know, our university and our brand and, and all those things that go along with it. So um, that's kind of allowed me to do both. Um, but it's been extremely busy, obviously, away for so long for the World Cup. And then as soon as I arrived back after we lost to uh, to England in the round of 16, uh, you know, we're out within 48 hours and came right back to Pittsburgh. And we were a few days already into preseason. And uh, so I've hit the ground running and I haven't uh, really taken a break. You know. How would you sum up what the whole World Cup experience was like and how were you able to overcome a distraction as big as that pay dispute that was going on with the Nigerian Federation and turn that into an almost getting to the quarterfinal at the World Cup? Yeah, you know, it was really, um, I don't even know still if it has has um, hit me um, as well as we did and everything looking back that we accomplished. Um, I haven't had a lot of time to really reflect on it, but you know, we, yes, we went through some difficulties, uh, obviously prior to the world cup and those are well-documented. And I think the thing we did when we arrived on that first day in Australia, when the team arrived and I arrived, we all met that evening and, um, basically put everything out there, um, within the team. And I think we made a, a conscious decision as a group to, uh, spend our time in Australia and focus just on the football and let the rest of it handle itself. Um, let the appropriate people take care of trying to solve the issues that the players had and uh, the issues that I had. And and I think they did a great job. A lot of this credit goes to those players that 
we're able to put all of that stuff um, on hold and really focus on doing the best they could wearing, you know, the jersey and representing their country and and the focus solely on football. And so I was that's probably the most amazing thing to me is how they managed and handled that. Um, you know, we had a really short camp. We, we really only had 10 days to prepare. Um, <laughs> quite honestly, we spent uh, knowing the group that we were in, uh, uh, you know, the group of death with the Olympic gold medalist and the host nation and both of those teams ranked in the top 10 in the world and then having Ireland, which was, I think, 21st in the world or 20th in the world at the time. Uh, we knew it was a very, very difficult group. So really in those 10 days, uh, coaches will appreciate this, but we just worked primarily on a, a good defensive block because we knew we weren't going to have the ball a lot with those teams and we needed to take away what they did well. Um, so we worked on a really good defensive block and a defensive structure. And then we worked on really counterattacking out of that defensive block, you know, because we knew chances would be few and far between and we needed to be efficient in our, our our transition game so those two areas are the big key areas we worked on and the players bought into it um completely and um i think as the tournament went on we just got better and better is there anything you felt you would have done differently about that england match and obviously going home in the penalty shootout has got to be gut-wrenching yeah, well, you know, as a coach, you always um, assess and evaluate, you know, uh, your performances and what you could have done differently, what we did well. And I honestly thought, uh, going back to the group stage, I thought all three matches we played uh, tactically the way we had to to get those results. And I even thought our tactics against England were spot on because I think England fully expected us to sit back in that defensive block because we had done that in the three matches in our group. But when I watched England play China, um, China had set in a defensive block. And of course it wasn't a very active block. They were in a nice compact block, but once the ball got in and around their players, they weren't very aggressive and, and active in winning the ball. So England just played right through their block. And I really watched that game closely. And I felt like, of course, Lauren James was such a key player for them. And um, and I thought their three center backs just had too much time on the ball to move it, to set play, to, to really dictate, you know, uh, the tempo of the game. So I went into that match consciously thinking about putting more pressure on their three backs. Uh, we wanted to man mark Lauren James out of the game. And I thought Halamatu Allende did a great job on her, got her very frustrated, obviously, with the ejection. Um, and then we we locked on our two attacking mids onto their two holding mids and with with Walsh. And and I, I felt like uh we took we took a lot of their strength away because they couldn't really feed bronze and daily, you know, weren't weren't nearly as much of a factor as they'd been in their other games. And then obviously it took away you know, the two strikers as well, because they couldn't get the service like they liked. And so I thought the game plan was good, that the two things that I may have done a little differently. And one, I think, quite honestly, was just um, the fact we didn't have enough time, you know, in the 10 days. But I think, you know, you always prepare what happens if you're a goal up, what happens if you're a goal down, what happens if you're a man up, a man down, like all of those scenarios you should be training and preparing for. And we did it in the classroom, but we didn't really have 
enough time to do it on the field. So my one regret is we didn't really have time, uh, the kind of time I wanted. Uh, but when England went down a player, to be honest, I thought we played worse than when they had 11. We were better against them with 11. And I think that was because England obviously dropped into a more defensive block. You know, they went more to a 4-4-1 and they set in a little bit and they looked to play off the counter. And instead of us being sophisticated enough or prepared enough to, to, to deal with that, you know, we kept trying to launch the ball long and, you know, we should have been keeping the ball and moving it side to side and trying to get around their block and get more service into the box and that kind of thing. And we really just didn't cope well with the man up. Um, so that was disappointing. I think always when you look at penalties, a game goes into penalties, you can always second guess, especially when you have players that, that miss, uh, you know, you always wonder, you know, did, was the order wrong? Did it was a selection of players wrong? But quite frankly, when you get into that moment, you know, most coaches will tell you, you, you train and you practice your penalties and you have your, your your 10 that you think you want on your list and they're fine with it when you're training. But when the moment comes in the game and you look them in the eye and you ask them if they're good with taking a penalty and then all of a sudden you have a couple of players tell you, no, we're not, I'm not, pick somebody else, then it changes things. So, mm -hmm. you know, we, we could have questioned the takers and the order a little bit. Um, you know, those are things you'll always question as a manager. And you you mentioned, you know, how busy things have been for you and how it, it almost hasn't really sunk in yet. But what was the reaction from Nigeria as a country after doing what you guys had done? Well, I'll go back in time a little bit. And after the African Cup of Nations, um, you know, when we lost to Morocco in the semifinal, we we played, look, I thought we played a an amazing match on that night. Most people won't know this, but um, we were tied at zeros at, at the half with Morocco and had the game fairly under control. But then in the second half, in a span of about seven minutes, I think we had two players ejected. Uh, so we played, I think, about 30 minutes of regulation and then 30 minutes of overtime, uh, two players short. And that's unheard of, you know, anywhere in the world. You've played a, a player short, but to play two players short. So the, object, the objective at that time was tactically to, to, to adjust on the fly and make a sub here or there to get to penalties. You know, you hope you get to penalties. And ironically, we hit the post with about three minutes left in the game that could have won it. And then we lost in penalties, but the players did a magnificent job of, of playing almost 60 minutes, two players down, uh, but we lost. So the public in Nigeria and the media were really harsh, really on my case. There were some other factors uh, that led to AFCON uh, with some player and federation issues that I just kind of took the heat. I didn't, you know, we didn't publicize and we didn't go public with those things. But it was a very negative um, situation after AFCON. And then ironically, after doing so well in the World Cup, you know, I think the fans have completely turned. I, I know a lot of friends back in Nigeria were sending me video of people gathered in pubs and things, watching the matches and the excitement in the country. And uh, a lot of people from Nigeria on my social platforms are, you know, very complimentary and uh, so proud of how the team performed. And I think even the Federation, um, 
are very pleasantly surprised, you know, at how well we did. I mean, you know, most people won't think of it this way, but we really went through that group and through the round of 16, we didn't lose a match. You know, we lost in penalties. Uh, and three out of those teams, I mean, you play the gold medalists, you play the European champions, and you play a very good Irish team and you don't concede a goal, you know, three clean sheets as well. So uh, I think everything in Nigeria is really turned for the better and everybody's excited. And, um, you know, now the, the key is, you know, for them to capitalize on the success of the team and keep moving forward. That's always the hope is that you don't take steps backwards, you know, you, that you can take steps forward and build on it. And do you feel like you like that you are going to stick with Nigeria or do you have plans to potentially go somewhere else? Yeah. Well, you know, right now I'm, I'm just waiting to see, I haven't heard. Um, so I'm not sure, uh, where we are, uh, you know, with things with Nigeria. Um, you know, my phone right now is, it's not ringing off the wall, but I know the world cup just finished. So I know there's a lot of, uh, opportunities that may be out there. And and so we'll just kind of wait and see what presents itself. But, um, you know, like I said, I, 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 um, I haven't yet heard, so I, it probably wouldn't be fair for me to speculate on what's going to go on with Nigeria, just because we haven't had those conversations yet. Totally understandable. Uh, yeah. what are your thoughts on FIFA's dual citizenship rule and how would you say it's benefited Nigeria? Well, obviously you look at our, our makeup of the squad that I selected and, 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 uh, you know, having that um, really helped us. I mean, we found, you know, several, several players in the U S that, you know, played for us now with uh, Ifioma and Michelle Alozi, uh, you know, Tony Payne, actually, I, I knew Tony from her university days here in the U S we tried to recruit her at Notre Dame where I was coaching at the time. And, so I've known that family for a long time. Um, but, you know, I think uh, just kind of looking across the board, I think it's um, it's helped a lot of a lot of countries and a lot of nations, especially when you have some emerging nations. I know for many, many years, Mexico um, really hit the U.S. and, and found, you know, the, the, the heritage uh, use, utilizing those rules uh, as well and building their program down in Mexico. And so I think, especially for a lot of up and coming nations, it can be a huge benefit, um, especially if you don't have as large of a player pool to choose from as some of the other nations. Uh, but for us, it you know, it's, um, I mean, look, we, we got Ashley Plumter also, that, you know, out of England, who who's going to be a great player uh, for a long time uh, for Nigeria. So, um, you know, I think it's special and it's unique too to, see the even though they're all nigerian in terms of their heritage um it's neat to see a little bit of the different cultures come together and how you know they how they get along and how they mesh and how they share ideas and um a lot of the the, the true nigerians uh you know are are teaching some of those that aren't living in nigeria a little bit more about the culture and how things are done there so it's really an interesting dynamic but i thought that's one thing our team did is they, they really came together probably uh, when we were in Turkey, the, the last international break before the World Cup, you could really see the team start to come together there. We'd, we'd beaten Haiti and we beat New Zealand. Um, but more importantly than the results, you could really see the team start to come together. And so I had a really good feeling about the World Cup. Now, I, I can't sit here and honestly tell you I expected to, to do as well as we did because it was such a difficult group. 
But um, again, I think it, it really goes back and says a lot about the kind of players we have. Speaking of the players that you have, uh, tell us more about what it was like working with uh, Asisato Shawala and just how good is she? Because I, I truly feel she's one of the more still underrated players in, in world soccer. Yeah, well, she's she's a special talent, but I think more importantly, she's a she's a, a really special person, too. You know, she's um, uh, loves her teammates, willing to do whatever it takes, you know, for the success of the team. Um, the thing about her as a player is she's she's strong. She's big. She's fast, obviously hyper athletic. Um, she's good around the goal, you know, in particular. Uh, I think the one thing that's interesting about her, well, let me go back and talk a little bit about her character too. She's got great leadership qualities. Um, even though she wasn't wearing the armband, she's one of the, the leaders of the team. And I think all the players look up and respect her and obviously all that she's accomplished, you know, at Barcelona and the success of that team. Um, I think everybody always looks up to her. She's she's just carries herself in that way. So she's been a nothing but a pleasure to work with since I've been on board the last couple of years. And, you know, unfortunately for me, a lot of the times we've had camps and breaks, she's been out with injuries. Um, so I haven't had her as much as, you know, I would have liked to uh, leading up to the World Cup. But uh, when she's around, she's, she's definitely special. Um, I would agree with you. I always do the I'm on the panel that does the BBC, you know, they, they, they rate the top, whatever, 100 players in the world kind of thing. And obviously she's always up there very high on my list. Um, I, I think maybe two things why a lot of people may not put her up there to the very top of the list of top players in the world um, is I think play. I, I think anybody that starts to talk about Africa then she will be the first name that comes up, obviously being a multi-time uh, winner of the African Player of the Year. So I think when people do think of, of Africa, then she is who they think of. But I think when you think about the top players in the world, obviously there'll be a lot of other names you know, discussed before you get to her. And I think part of that is, one, because she is African. I think a lot of people don't really follow African football the branding of it out there on the national level is not what it is in Europe or mm -hmm. South America or North America for that matter. Um, so I don't think she kind of gets the publicity and the the branding that a lot of other players, you know, like a Lucy Bronze or an Alex Morgan in the U S or, you know, those kind of players seem to have um, a higher profile just because of the countries that they're playing for. I think the other thing too, with Asisat is, a lot of people give her grief, I think, at times because she doesn't freely score the kind of goals, you know, that she's scoring for Barcelona. And the thing I've always tried to explain is that playing for and coaching in a national team is quite different than doing it with your club. You know, she's she's with Barcelona every day. She's training with the same players every day. She knows their movements. They know her movements. They know where she wants the ball and how she wants the ball and their style fits her very well, especially in and around the goal where they can dominate play so much and, and, and get the ball to her in the right areas. And I think for us in Africa, if you just go back in my tenure, I mean, it seems like every camp, every international break we have, there's a different group of players, you know, there's a core, but there's a lot of new faces always coming in and out. And, and, um, 
we have issues sometimes getting players in because of visas and that kind of thing. So I don't think we have the consistency at the national team level that a club team has in order for her to be playing with the same players all the time. Uh, will we really know each other's movements and, and ways and the way we like the ball? I think now after the World Cup, that'll get a little bit better. Hopefully if they sustain keep continuity in what they're doing, then I, I think it has a chance to um, to have a better continuity with those players that that we brought to the World Cup. But I think there's a difference, you know, and I think that's probably one of the things. It's not like uh, she scores her fair share for us, but it's not like, you know, what, what um, the countries that get to come together a lot. Like I know the U.S., they're here in the U.S., the national team, the league is structured in a way where those players can get called in anytime and train and play. So they're together so much more than, than we are at Nigeria. Uh, and I think the other nations are that way, you know, the power nations are that way too. So th those for me are the reasons why maybe she's not a household name, like, like some of the other players we see in Europe. Sure. And one of the things that has amazed me that I have not seen in, in football at all is, how a manager such as yourself can balance between the Nigerian national team and Pitt at the same time. I've never seen that. I've never, like, it's very rare. So what, like, how do you manage not only the stress, but working with two teams and having this much success that you've had with both? Yeah. Well, it, it really starts here with the setup I have here at Pitt. Um, my son, Ben, um, is my associate head coach. So it's almost like that title is a title we use a lot here in the U.S., you know, associate head coach. And it really, it's almost like a, a co-head coach with you. So he's obviously being my son. He worked with me at the University of Notre Dame when we won our first national championship there. He left for about eight years, took his, you know, wanted to be his own person and took his own head job. And then when this opportunity came at Pitt, you know, I, I, I asked him to come back and help me uh, rebuild this program because when we got here at Pitt, this program was really poor and um, I needed somebody that knew my way and knew how, you know, same philosophy and those kind of things. So we've really turned this into a national power in, in these last four and a half years uh, that we've been here. And a lot of that credit goes to him and I couldn't do Nigeria if I didn't have him here, if it were a different assistant, I don't, I probably couldn't have taken on the Nigeria project. Um, but he's runs things. He knows exactly, you know, philosophically how we want to play. Our, he knows our game model. Um, so it really doesn't skip a beat. Our players here are excited for me when I get to go to Nigeria and, you know, they understand too, that every time I go to an international competition, I'm always bringing back, new I it makes me better you know as a coach I mean and um, we know that transfers here and vice versa a little bit of the ways we do things um, that we do here can help me at Pitt and one good example I can think of is in the U.S. our college pre-seasons are very short they're only about two weeks long and we all know that's not enough time but mm -hmm. that's the way they're structured here at the university system and that probably in some ways helped me with Nigeria only having 10 days to get them prepared uh, for the World Cup is I knew really well how to how to pick one or two key things and focus on that and how to manage our, our training loads and those kind of things in those 10 days. So 
Um, but I, I really think it starts at home with the support I have here and, and having been on board is, is probably the biggest factor in me, me being able to do both. That's awesome. And what about Pitt made you want to rebuild this, this program and do this with your son? Well, an interesting story, what had happened is in 20, I got to think back a minute, but I think it was in 2018, um, Thomas Jennerby had been the coach of Nigeria. Uh, but in 2018, President Pinnock, the Nigerian Federation president at the time, had, uh, well, I started, my phone started uh, blowing up one day around September of 2018 saying, hey, congrats, I hear you're the Nigeria coach. And I saw articles from Nigeria, but I hadn't really heard directly from the Federation. I knew our, our president of U.S. soccer had recommended me for that post. And I was in between jobs at that time. And um, so I was very interested in the Nigeria job, but I didn't hear and we didn't get anything solved contractually uh, for a few months. So when the pit job came open, I knew the conference that they're in is the best conference in the country. I knew about the university academically. And, um, you know, even though the program was really poor, the challenge of taking that on and building it, you know, kind of excited me because um, it was a different kind of challenge. And, and so I went ahead and took this job and let President Pinnock know that I was not going to take the Nigeria job. So he then hired Thomas Dennerby, who took them through the 2019 World Cup. And I think maybe even part of the Olympic qualification process. I'm not sure before he left. And then they called back um, to see if I would take it after he left. And I said at the time, the only way I would do it is if, if I did both, um, you know, because I was just building this. I didn't want to leave, you know, this project, uh, just getting it going. And um, I also knew of some of the, uh, the things in Nigeria. And I wanted to make sure um, you know, that the process was going to work, that I could accomplish the things in Nigeria that I wanted to accomplish. And um, so they agreed to that. And and that's how it kind of started. We kind of ran with it from there. And and uh, so it's, yeah, it's definitely a unique situation. And uh, fortunately, it's, you know, it, it has worked out for both of us up to this point. Yeah. And uh, last year was the program's first uh, NCAA tournament appearance. You're bringing back half of the team you had last year with 11 upper-class women. What are the team's goals for this year, and what are you hoping to achieve? Well, yeah, you know, last year was our first time to get in. I think the program was 20, 22 years old when we took it over in 2018, and it had only had two winning seasons in 22 years. It, it They'd gone through a handful of coaches and – just hadn't had any success. And so the last three years, actually, we've put three back-to-back-to-back uh, -to -back -to -back winning seasons together. Uh, in the U.S., there's about 340-some-odd Division I programs playing for one, one national champion at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And so these last two years or so, we've been ranked in our top 25 in the country. And as you mentioned, last year made it to the, to the NCAA tournament, the playoffs for the first time and made it all the way to the final 16 uh, before we, we, we lost to, uh, to Florida State. So this year, I think the, the goal is, you know, we need to, to meet that expectation at least. You know, we need to make um, the NCAA tournament again. I'd like to make another deep run into it, if at all possible. And obviously, we would love nothing more to get deeper than the round of 16. But um, 
you know, right now we're trying to to build this program to where it's uh, a program that people think of it. They think of excellence instead of we don't want just a one year success. You know, it's great. We had success last year and the year before we had success. But what we want is to put together consistency year after year after year where we're making the NCAA tournament and we're making and competing for a deep run in the tournament. And and then then people will start to think of the program as a, a team of excellence. And that's kind of what we wanted to do with Nigeria is, is uh, get them on the world stage and show that we're capable of competing at the world stage. But when I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, now we need to capitalize on that and continue to build off of it. We don't want to just have had a successful World Cup and now it go backwards again and we, you know, we fall by the wayside and we stay 40 or 50 in the FIFA rankings. We want to build on that. So when people think of the top nations in the world playing on the world stage, that Nigeria can be in that conversation with the other top 15 or so uh, nations that you always talk about. So we're really trying to accomplish the same type things here on, on both levels. And you have so much experience at so many different levels between the World Cup, you've coached in the NWSL, you're in the college game now. Which would you say is the most difficult to work in? You know, they all three present a different kind of challenge. I mean, a national team is different in 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 the respect that you don't have your team daily. You know, you're only getting them in international windows, in international breaks. So it's a different challenge. Um, the pro game is a different challenge, obviously, than the collegiate game. Uh, the collegiate game has a very short and abbreviated season. It's it runs from August to December. Uh, you do have a spring season, but it doesn't. You just play friendlies in the spring. They don't count in your championship season. Um, so a lot of the collegiate game uh, has to do with recruiting and player development and so forth. The, the, out of all of the, the things I've done, though, the, the probably the, the most difficult challenge for me was the NWSL at the time I went into it. Now, I don't think the pro game itself, generally speaking, is more difficult than the other two. But I think I came into uh, the NWSL at a time that the league itself was still relatively young. So it was evolving as a league and the rules were kind of constantly changing in the structure of the league. And then the other thing is we were an expansion team. So building a team from scratch to compete against other teams that were well-established and already had a history proved a little difficult um, just because you're limited with salary cap and, you know, you can't just go buy who you want to buy in our system here in the U S uh, we're structured with a, with a certain salary cap and so forth. So it, it was proved a little different, but what a lot of people may not know about my tenure at Houston was um, I didn't have any full-time staff. Uh, the other teams in the league had, you know, full-time assistant coaches and they had strength and conditioning coaches. Um, and, and we didn't, you know, we were, uh, we were part of the Houston Dynamo, which is the men's club here in the MLS, but, you know, they had their own training pitch and their own locker room at the, practice facility well our practice facility was a sport complex next to their field but we shared fields with youth teams and sometimes the field was open sometimes it was torn up and it was closed I mean it wasn't you know we weren't the only ones using it our locker rooms were in the stadium which was downtown Houston about 20 minutes away 
So we couldn't come and go. I can remember my individual player meetings. I would sit on the bench at the park and we'd sit and have individual player meetings. I didn't even have an office. Um, <laughs> but my staff was um, just volunteer coaches. I had a um, uh, an assistant that worked at a college there in Houston that would come in in the mornings and help me train the team, but then he'd have to leave and go to the university and um, you know, so we, we didn't have the resources a lot of the other teams had, uh, which made that a difficult challenge. And I think the other th hard part about the league in the U.S. is I would have probably tried to build the team differently if I ever do it again in, in America. Now, a pro team in Europe is quite different uh, because of the structure of the leagues. But in the U.S., we tried to build it with um, – you know, some national team players and some top international players and that kind of thing. And so I did have over my tenure, I had players like Carly Lloyd. I had Morgan Bryan uh, with me. I had Janine Becky from Canada. I had the Australian goalkeeper, uh, Lydia Williams mm. with me, Denise O'Sullivan. We drafted Rachel Daly. So we had some good players. Plus I had two or three um Brazilian players. So, and this was not all at the same time, but this was over a three or four year period that I was there. Uh, and we tried to build it that way. But what, what I, if I had to do it again, I would, I would build differently because what we found, what I found out in the pro league in the U S is that anytime there is a, out of a four year cycle, you're really going to only have your players all of those players one year, because one year you're preparing for qualification for the world cup. So the national teams are calling their players back in all the time. So we wouldn't have those national team players. Then the next year, once you qualified is the world cup year. So you didn't have those players again. And then the year after is the Olympic year and you wouldn't have those players again. And then you only have that one off year where you really have them all together. So I would have, I would have done things a little differently um, if I had that to do over again. I would, have, I would have built the team more around a core group of players that were going to be there consistently and not not brought in so many national team players that were not going to be there for you the whole time. You know, I think you, you, you still you still would need a few of them, you know, those key players that can make a difference for you. But um, so that was probably the hardest um, of the uh, of the opportunities that I've had, and and a lot of it had to do also with facilities and not having the infrastructure and not having a staff and those kind of things, which made it a little bit bigger of a challenge. Yeah, and the league has definitely come a long way, I'm sure. Yeah. Since then, also, you definitely get the resources you need now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and coach, last question for you: uh, Having seen all of the the soccer that you've seen and managed and coach, what is your advice to all the young girls out there? are looking to take their game to the next level whether it's you know youth college pro yeah well i think it's really really important um for, for the very young players to get a great a foundation you know the the skill sets that you need to play you know receiving the ball passing the ball dribbling the ball you know finish all those technical components of the game spend as much time as you can to be efficient there. Don't worry so much about playing on a winning team, get in an environment with a coach that's really going to develop your skill set at a young age, because nobody, when I was in the pros, now that I'm in college, also with a national team, I never asked them for how many trophies they won at under 10, you know, or, or under 12 years old, those things don't matter. So 
my advice would be get with a good coach that can really hone in and develop your skills at a young age. And then I think it's just also so much of it is just believing too in, um, in yourself and what you can achieve. You know, I, I think it's um, so many players that I've seen that um, have gone on and, and made it into the pro leagues and sustained a good pro career. A lot of those players did it just based off of um, uh, belief in themselves and, you know, continuing to, to hone in on the craft and, you know, not every player, uh, playing at the highest level, uh, were born star players. You know, they all they all came up. So I think that's the most um, important advice is to get with somebody that can help you develop, make sure you're committing your time. Uh, but if you want those, if young players want to achieve and reach those levels, it's certainly not beyond your means. Uh, I know here in the U.S., there's so much opportunity to play at the university level, Um and there's now so many opportunities, even on the world stage, to play professionally somewhere. I mean, we have different levels of professional leagues all around the world now. So even those top players that maybe can't play for, for Barcelona, for example, or uh, or Wolfsburg or, you know, Chelsea or somebody like that, they certainly can find a league, you know, somewhere uh, that they can play in if, if, uh, if they, you know, work at it. So... Um, I think those dreams can come true, but just really pay attention to the environment you're in as a young player. Again, that was Randy Waldrum. And you could just from talking to him, you could see and hear just how much of a tactician that man is and his ability to think about the game and game plan around it and figure out what is the best, what is going to give us the best chance to win. And that's ultimately what a coach's job is. What is going to give us the best chance to win games? And and that's exactly what you saw from Nigeria at the World Cup. We got to talk about Asisero Shawala, how you know they overcame the pay dispute, how they were able to put that behind them. There was so much there. And on top of that, he's also building a national power at Pitt in the strongest conference in america the acc they are 5-0 and right now and beating the teams that they are supposed to beat as they get ready to ramp up for acc play so keep an eye on the pit panthers this year all right they're bringing back a ton of key players as we mentioned a ton of experience again they talked about getting past now the sweet 16 can they get to an elite can they get to a final four all of that is going to be exciting to really keep an eye on with the pit panthers again that was randy waldrum and we are so grateful to have had him on through the united soccer coaches convention uh they have been incredible to work with and it's been a blessing that we have uh, a working relationship with them so again we're grateful to them and we're grateful to coach randy waldrum for taking the time to speak with us we shift gears now to the nwsl which again has also been incredibly exciting I think the biggest thing to note is World Cup burnout or just ramping back up after the World Cup. You're seeing the teams that have been impacted the most by the World Cup are the teams that are on skids. So the OL Reign, for example, are on a downward trajectory right now, which is unthinkable thinking where they were you know, to start the year and they're still the number one seed in the Challenge Cup. But you're starting to see they've fallen out of the playoffs. They still have a game in hand. They can still work their way back into the top six. But they are on a slide, and they have to beat the Orlando Pride in order to stop the bleeding. They have to do something 
to fix this situation. So the Reign are in a tough spot. The Courage have started to falter after they were in first place. They just played a thriller with Gotham after being up 2-0, blew that lead, and it finished 3-3 in a game where Gotham doesn't normally score that many goals. So the Courage have some issues to sort out. The Thorns, after getting back on track, blew a 1-0 lead and lost to Racing Louisville. So a lot of the top teams have had issues since the World Cup, since we've come back to NWSL play. And all of the teams that were not having that issue, have who have all been outside of the playoff race, are now starting to play some of their best soccer of the year. Kansas City Current, even though they did just lose to Angel City, they've been playing great. The Orlando Pride have been on a tear. Messia Bright is the first player in NWSL history to win Player of the Month and Rookie of the Month in the same month. Then you have Angel City, who is on a 8-9 game unbeaten run under Becky Tweed. She's doing an incredible job, has cleaned up all of the issues that Freya Coombe was unable to fix. So Becky Tweed deserves, honestly, to have the interim tag removed and become the manager full-time, if you ask me. She's proven that, but well, I guess we have to see how the rest of the season plays out. Racing Louisville, of course, getting that win over the Thorns, and they're playing there now in the top six as well. So that's the beauty of this league, and as it is, the league is, the league is hard enough. But then when you add into the fact that you have you add a World Cup in the middle of it, I mean, it just makes it even even that much more difficult, especially for certain teams. Again, the emotional dump. Like, can you imagine for those players to have to come back after that loss? Some will com compartmentalize. Some will take time off. Some will be ready to play. Some won't. It's just a very interesting situation when you sandwich a domestic league in the middle of the World Cup. All the other leagues are off. They don't have to worry about that. They can get ready and take time off and then get ready for the start of the season. Whereas we're smack dab in the middle of it. So it makes it a very unique situation for the NWSL. And I mean, it adds to the parity. It adds to how great the league has been this year. It is so incredibly tight right now. You have... The Thorns on 29 points still at the top, and then you have all the playoffs teams within five points of that, and then you have a logjam between 7th and 8th, also on 24 points, between the Rain Angels. So really, the top 8 or 9 teams, even the 10th tenth, and 11th place aren't mathematically out of the equation. Even the Chicago Red Stars aren't mathematically out. Yeah, they might not be playing to the level to where you need to get into the playoffs, but everyone still has a chance, and that's what makes this league so much fun. And again, I think we have, after this week, we will have four games remaining, so we're really getting down to the home stretch, people, so you definitely want to keep it locked on how this season is going to end. Other important news within the league... Sophia Smith survived a huge scare. I think everyone was incredibly worried with the way that she went down, the pain that she was in. It looked really serious. Luckily, it is just an MCL sprain, so surely it'll be it'll still be a couple of weeks. The Thorns will naturally be precautious with their superstar, but to at least know that she is okay, she should be back for the postseason most likely. There's no way that she's not going to be back for that as they go for the NWSL crown.
one of the saddest bits of news, uh, Julie Ertz has retired from football. And while she wasn't able to give Angel City a full season, it still was, was great to see her in an Angel City uniform. That was, you know, truly special, along with giving it one last go at the World Cup. I think this was her last hurrah, and the goal was to go out on top for her and for Megan Rapino that they were going to, you know, end it in a Cinderella story type of a fairy tale type story, but it did not turn out that way. And uh, Julie Ertz to me is like a Captain Marvel type personality. Like that's what she meant for the U.S. Women's National Team and for whatever club team she played for. Like you want to talk about a player who, more than anyone, more than anyone, put her body on the line time after time. Nobody played harder than her. No one gave more than what she gave and I think that's why we're, we're seeing her call it quits now um, after after having a kid I think she's she's ready she when you give everything that you have to something and you know it's time and you know it's time so you know Julie Ertz we thank you for every single contribution that you have made to the game and we will miss you dearly uh, because the the game is just better when you're there whether you're with the national team or not, the game is just better when you're in there doing what you do best. You've always been a joy to watch, and it sucks to see that that it's over, but uh, we will celebrate what was an incredible, incredible career. Another big piece of news in the NWSL, the Red Stars have sold. Arnim Whistler has sold the club to Chloe Ricketts, one of the co-owners of the Chicago Cubs. That is a big, big deal coming out of Chicago. And, and you know, I think we know based on what had happened last year with Rory Dames, that whole situation, uh, Arnim Whistler had come under quite a lot of fire for what had happened. And I think that is what eventually led to this sale. And so Chloe Ricketts, who was also a important figure in the Chicago community, I mean, being a co-owner of the Cubs, I mean, the Cubs is probably the biggest team in Chicago. So in turn by, by a, I mean, not by a wide margin, the Bears are, are a big deal, but the Chicago Cubs are a big deal. So when you're, when you're a co-owner of that and now you're taking over the Red Stars, I think it's only, it's the best possible, you know, person that the team could have been sold to rather than, than an outsider. It gets to stay in Chicago. So I think that's probably the best thing about that whole situation is that Chloe Ricketts is going to take over as uh, an important figure in the league as the Red Stars are a big team in in terms of what it means to the league. They're one of the you know original members. So the Red Stars have a new owner, Chloe Ricketts. Two more pieces of news. One, Pia Sundaga is out as Brazil's manager. Naturally, they failed to get out of the group stage because they, they muffed that last game, unfortunately, and did not make it to the knockout stages, so we did not get to see kind of Brazil at their best, which was unfortunate. And I think she honestly deserves better, but, but there is an opening somewhere with the U.S. Women's National Team, and I think there are some people who are speculating, like, why not come back? Why not a second stint why not give it another opportunity i think they went after 
a few other big time play, uh, managers like Serena Bygman. I think they went, you know, they went after some other big names. But if if all else fails, I think bringing there's nothing wrong with bring, bringing back Pia Sundaga. I mean, again, if not for Japan and Homare Sawa, they would have won that World Cup. Uh, if if Homare Sawa Homare Sawa is one a once in a generation type player, and that game going to penalties the way it did. Like they were that close to to getting that World Cup crown, and it's something that has been left unfinished in Sundhaga's career. So I think if you if she were to come back, I honestly I would love to see what the feedback would be. I, I'm sure there would be some mixed reviews of oh no we don't want her back versus but I do I think she's a great manager and I think her familiarity with the federation already and and with the players i think would just be a tremendous boost to try and get the united states back to the promised land and and being on top again as, as the world's best so could pia Sundaga return to the u.s women's national team we don't know but uh, it's an interesting thing to keep an eye on it might happen we'll see and lastly i will do my best to keep off of the college soccer topics uh, because again, now we have the Big Life podcast, so be sure to check that out. Right, Sam Carey, Jordan Wicks, the Big Ten, everything college soccer. I did just want to briefly mention number one UCLA went down to BYU, a top another top ten program that is on continually on the rise under Jennifer Rockwood. It's kind of been this steady, steady building up. You've you've got multiple players in the league. Now in the NWSL, like Michaela Clough and others who were, you know, becoming established players, so they've built this pipeline now, and BYU is becoming a, a national power right before our very eyes, and a huge 3-1 win over the Bruins, who still might not maintain their number one ranking, but they're going to be a top three, top five team all year. We've had uh, Marguerite Alzaza on the podcast before. She is an incredible soccer mind. And that team is deep and as talented as can be in the country. So even though they lost that game, I know they will be back. Just wanted to highlight really quickly that that was a big game and a, and a big upset uh, early on in the college soccer season. Alrighty, that is all I have for you today on episode 64 of Give and Go. I'm your host, Rotas Odera, and thank you so, so much for making the choice to listen to us at Girls Soccer Network. Please leave us a review like and share this podcast wherever you listen to them give us some feedback whatever whatever we can do to give you the content that you need you want to ask you want to have a question asked whatever it is get in touch with me on instagram at rowindatas25 r-o-w-i-n-d-a-t-a-s 25 and www.girlsoccernetwork.com on socials wherever please make sure to again support us as as much as you can have continued to support us we are grateful and we will be back soon but until then enjoy the rest of the nwsl season the college soccer season everything else coming up we will talk later guys peace out